Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. It's The Wonky Show. We'll chat admissions and student numbers and things. Uh, we'll talk about assessment and graduation and risks for students. Uh, and the civic role of universities suddenly sounds pretty important, so we'll have a think about that. It's all coming up. I think government kind of, you know, has very, very quickly realised that um, the policy frameworks that it, it has put in place and supported over the last decade are in many ways the worst possible preparation for uh, the time that we're experiencing now and the time to come. And I think kind of, you know, we've often made the point that higher education escaped the worst of... Uh Welcome to The Wonky Show, your weekly way into this week's higher education news, policy and analysis. I'm Jim Dickinson up in the attic and here to help us make sense of this week's stuff. As usual, we have a couple of excellent guests. Uh, in Berkhamstead, Andy Westwood is Vice Dean for Social Responsibility for the Faculty of Humanities at the University of Manchester. Andy, your reason to be cheerful this week? Well, my reason to be cheerful was definitely finding out that I was going to do a wonky podcast with a couple of fellow West Midlanders. This is like the regional edition of new shows when kind of, you know, the, 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 the primary candidates aren't available. The Regular listeners will be surprised to learn that our second guest this week is Selena Bolingbrook, uh, who was only on a couple of weeks ago, but, uh, but as Andy says, we could not resist the opportunity to reunite the West Midlands Massive. So, uh, in Gravesend, Selena is lead for external engagement and strategic development at Goldsmiths University of London. Selena, your reason to be cheerful? Reasons to be cheerful. Uh, obviously, it's, you know, we're having to dig deep this week. Um, I thought I thought my reason to be cheerful was I did um, sign up, like I'm sure many other people have, to be an NHS volunteer. So Tuesday was my day when I was free and uh, I toggled myself on duty on the app and then sat there. I had an extra egg on my uh, for my breakfast that morning out of my rations, just so I was fit and ready. And then nobody called on me. So I wasn't very cheerful. And so um, probably the only thing I can think of that has made me smile this week is I found in my cellar a unopened pack of uh, 30 mil cable ties and uh, cable ties always make me feel safe because there is no job that isn't improved by the addition of a cable tie. So yes, we start this week with the news that student number controls might be on the way back. The Guardian reported on a meeting of the UK board that discussed admissions practice in universities. Andy, talk to us about this one. Yeah, so you're right. This is the uh, the big policy story rippling around uh, English higher education kind of this week. It, and it's the return of, um, or the likely return, of some form of number controls uh, um, sitting across this autumn's uh, recruitment, uh, obviously, which is the sort of recruitment season that's that's already kicking off uh, at the moment. Um, and and I think kind of you know there are three three things driving driving this this uh, this story. The first, obviously, is the coronavirus and kind of the the uncertainty that that's bringing to when the autumn term starts, but also to the exams that. Uh, uh, um, year thirteen students are aren't sitting, um, and other qualifications. 
But that's on top of, you know, a rampant HE market where the market-based reforms, enhancing competition over places, uncapping of places has, has really kind of, you know, set us in competition against each other. So when there's, a, when there's uncertainty stemming from uh, um, international recruitment in particular, uh, and QS released a survey overnight talking about uh, the number of inter- international students out there globally who are still sticking to their plans, uh, and they report that only 14% are planning to enrol as planned. So this is a kind of, you know, a huge change to to English higher education that's so utterly dependent on on uh, international recruitment these days and and what lots of universities throughout the sector have uh, have raised their concerns about is that these ripples are going are going to go through the rest of the sector. Uh, those selective institutions in the Russell Group and elsewhere are going to take more from the domestic uh, um, applicant market than they might normally do, and that's going to kind of put some places into more uh, uh, more risk than they might ordinarily have been facing. And it, it gets worse, you, you know, the, the financial risk for the, for the sector gets worse the longer the lockdown and the physical closure of university campuses goes on. So it's it's something that kind of, you know, lots of different universities right across the sector are getting increasingly worried about. And, you know, their first opportunity to really sort of change the income pattern is, is recruitment this uh, this summer. So, you know, so there's a huge amount of pressure on it. It looks very likely to happen. And I have to say, I think it's very sensible that it happens. Um, Chris Husbands, the VC at Sheffield Hallam, uh, wrote a piece on HEPI last week, which uh, uh, proposed a soft cap based on plus 5% of uh, an institution's recruitment average over the last three years, which seems like a, a, pretty, a pretty sensible place to start. Um, it's, it's not clear where, where the OFS and, and DFE will end up. But I think it's uh, I think it's it's certainly very sensible for them to be looking at it, and I think kind of you know as far as the government's concerned, they've intervened in every other market. So even though we've been used to uh, a fairly rampant and accelerating market in higher education, it's no surprise that uh, a government previously committed to that policy agenda is beginning to kind of change its mind over sort of you, you know those immediate measures that it might have to do to shore up the sector. And I think two two sort of last thoughts really um, by way of introduction. One is that, um, you know, there are, there are two big agendas for the government here that they need to be thinking about the long term for. You know, one is, is the levelling up agenda. Um, so it's their, their commitment, you know, headlining the budget, which was only a couple of weeks ago, um, where they want to uh, address and reduce regional inequality, which is a big, big issue in, in the UK economy. Um, and the second is is their support for science and research. And I think, um, you know, that also a headline in the budget. And it's clear that kind of, you know, this government doesn't want to see uh, the capabilities in either of those areas irreparably damaged uh, because of kind of the market in student recruitment. So this brings both Russell Group institutions, post-92s and everybody else into the se- in the sector into the scope for, um, you know, for, for policymakers to think about, well, what do we want to preserve here? Uh, and the very kind of final point I would make is that, you know, suddenly uh, the, the Office for Students is, is becoming kind of even more like hefty every day, which um, I suspect is uh, also a pretty good thing. Selena, obviously the the, 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 the principle that's being 
uh, sort of thrown around and discussed is is the idea of attempting to at least to spread the pain around the sector. But if if everyone suffers pain, does everyone then need some actual treatment in terms of financial support? You know, what 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 are what are the kind of you know the, the numbers that people around the sector that are senior are thinking about? I think the numbers are absolutely eye watering, um, and I think it is pain for everybody. Um, I think that at the moment the attention is on international students and what the drop might look like. And as Andy said, the QS survey that came overnight, I mean, you know, <laughs> I think it would be optimistic now to start doing scenario modelling at 50% of those that were previously planned to come. I think more realistic, you know, in the range of 10, 20%. But I think the fears that international students have and the actual, obviously, physical controls in some cases of international students being able to um, go to their, their, their university and country of choice. We haven't yet started talking about what the impact might be on the domestic market. Uh, I think certainly some people that I've talked to um, who've got uh, young people in their household who were thinking about going to university next year, um, they feel very uncertain, very unsure about whether next year is the right th- the right time for them to go. So I think it isn't just the international students at universities will be worried about, it will be their home UK students as well. Um, and in which case, it is pain across everybody and it is pain of a magnitude that we will have not seen before. Um, and I think in that context, yes, I think student number controls is the one area where, you know, the government... Uh, through uh, OFS can exert some control but actually it is a little bit like fiddling around the edges I think it is going to look like that in retrospect but um, as Andy says this is something that's going to require a level of intervention Um, I don't know if I'd use the term bailout but a level of intervention across the sector um, in a way that we've not seen before I suppose the question from a public policy point of view is where do we sit in that queue of people of sectors with their um, their begging bowls out, uh, are, are we going to be in their top ten or even their top twenty? I'm not so sure. I think the one thing it, it, it does expose is um, I think something that you know some of us have, have, have feared for a long time, but is the fragility of trying to put um, you know a, a, a marketized framework onto a higher education sector. And I, I think this is the time that we will have to think about you know what the um, what the quid pro quo is, if there is going to be the kind of uh, national uh, support for our university sector, um, then what will be expected in the long term uh, to pay that down? Uh, Andy, obviously, there's been lots of focus on uh, England, but that you know that, that, that a potential collapse in international students has a massive impact on you know slightly less, depending on which nation you look at, marketised nations. Yeah, and uh, you know, there's been a story this week in the Times about uh, uh, Scottish universities raising that already with the government, and and of course, you, you know, in 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 Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland to an extent, you've got a very different relationship between universities and public funding, and kind of the way the state is operating in in each of those places. But the essential story is the same. Um, you, you know, this is this is something that that uh, I think. I think government kind of, you know, has very, very quickly realised that um, the policy frameworks that it, it has put in place and supported over the last decade are in many ways the worst possible preparation for uh, the time that we're experiencing now and the time to come. And I think kind of, you know, we've often made the point that higher education escaped the worst of uh, austerity and kind of, you know, in that some universities in the sector have become, uh, you know, awash with cash 
uh, and have done very well out of uh, uh, the change in approach to number controls and and competition and all the rest of it. But what it does show is that is that kind of you know these the, the finances of all these organisations that have been pursuing that policy agenda are incredibly finely balanced and incredibly fragile. There was a fantastic piece written this week by uh, Chris Cook, who used to be the education correspondent at the FT, now works for Tortoise, great news organisation doing some really interesting stuff. And in the context of the NHS, he talks about kind of, you know, government policy based on competition, on productivity, particularly in the public sector, has created this kind of fragility, a fragile state, which means that things are are very, very quickly vulnerable in circumstances that don't suit it. And I think that's what we're seeing. And that's what we're likely to see in higher education with some very well established, uh, very kind of, you know, high reputation institutions, uh, the longer this, uh, uh, the longer this lockdown and the uncertainty around it goes on. so, you know, it, it, it just shows kind of how finely kind of balanced our business models and the policy networks and context that have supported it um, have, have left the sector, you, you know, and how quickly they can descend back into a situation of real risk. Selena, let's say that, uh, you know, that a, a way is found on, on the finances. One of the things that people have been sort of talking about all week is, you know, what would a kind of online only September look like? Is that actually viable, that sort of you know that kind of scenario that people have been working up that says you know social distancing will still be huge in September so we'll plan to do everything on online for for the first term. I I think that you know different learners would would have different reactions to this I think for the majority of young learners you know the 18 to 24 year old staple of most universities full-time students I don't think that it is uh, it's it's definitely not a like for like is it in terms of student experience um I have to say I've got my own 21 year old and when we when we caught up on FaceTime last week and I asked her what she was missing you know the first thing she said was the pub um it took her a while and then she said yeah I'm kind of missing you and my brother as well but you know I, I, without being too kind of uh trivializing it too much the social side of university for a lot of our students is, and, and, and social not just at the pub but the engagement with one another the social interaction is not just a big part of their social experience it's an incredibly important part of their learning experience I've always had the view that learning is essentially a social activity um for really deep learning in particular um, and I and, and so I in, for those reasons I don't think that um, it is going to be something that is can just be addressed through doing what we do now uh, and, and moving that online. I think in some cases the quality of what we've done has been amazing over the last couple of weeks as a temporary fix. Um, but I think that you know all of us would take a step back as teachers and say, is that really? the best kind of learning activities that we can have for the learning outcomes that we have previously set out. I think there are another group of students. I was talking to a vice chancellor last week who was telling me that when they'd looked at their engagement analytics from their sort of various online platforms, that for a certain group of students, their commuting students, they had found higher levels of engagement than they had previously had when the campus was open. And I thought that was quite interesting. You know, life is often a relative game. Spending less time on the bus. Yeah, spending less time on the bus. <laughs> yeah. um, but also, I think, you know, suddenly realising that a lot of the things that they might have been doing that were exceptional before and that they were doing alone, actually, they now probably had a better sense of student community who were doing the kind of things that they had previously been trying to do to keep their learning up. So, you know, I think that they might be um, the people who who would cope best. But I, I, I just think that it's not a credible 
alternative, it's it's a stopgap. And I think, you know, there will be people in the sector who are thinking we'd rather delay than to just put up an online offer for the first term starting in October. Um, and I think we do have sufficient time in our calendar year, the way the academic year works. I think there are things that we can do potentially to truncate terms, um, to have less holiday time, to have faster assessment turnaround. Um, it's a bit like the football season. Um, I, I tend to think that I want to finish this season at all costs. And even if it means we start 2021 a couple of months, months late, then so be it. Um, but I think that in terms of the way in which we need to think about our responses, I think, you know, number one, we need to start operating collaboratively as a sector. You know, the, the role of University UK in terms of building that collaboration and not leaving it to the, you know, the various sort of mission, mission groups is incredibly important. I think number two, we need to separate out what is the short term get, get us through response from what is the long term. Because I think like every other sector, there are some aspects of this crisis that will stay with us for much longer than the virus is about. And, and, and Andy, just before we uh, just, just before we move on, th- th- this thing about, just to bring it full circle, this thing about the kind of, you know, the role of national agencies, national leadership. There's a couple of uh, student union presidents on the on the side this morning that, that are saying competition is unhelpful, chivying universities along by announcing expectations to students in a letter is unhelpful, and being overcautious about not centrally prescribing approaches is also unhelpful. D- 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 it is, has something changed around competition? competition and the role of you know OFS and QAA and so on has, has something changed here that that, that means you know a, a significant dampening down of competition and autonomy um I think I mean autonomy is a, a another point entirely I think I think you know this is a an existential moment for not just institutions as Selena said you know what do we prioritize what are we for and how do we kind of you know achieve all of the things that uh, we need to achieve but i think it's a pretty existential moment for all of those agencies and national organizations including the dfe about kind of you know what's the right what's the right kind of policy context and the right operating sort of uh, agency landscape to kind of make this happen. And as, as I said in the introduction, I think kind of, you know, we, we've been watching, I guess, over time, the OFS sort of step back from kind of, you know, the, the, the Joe Johnson model of, of absolute competition, no real interest in institutions themselves, no real interest in place, in regions, in sectors, you know, utterly kind of stripped back to uh, um, to return to that kind of agency that needs to act much more in, in the way that, that Hefke did. Uh, you know, what's the right balance between institutions What's and, and student interest? What's the right uh, forward-looking capability you want to build into and preserve within the sector. So I think you know this is a, this is a big moment. I very much doubt we'll see the kind of end of competition entirely. I don't think you know this is uh, going to be kind of one of those things that that completely changes the world from top to bottom. Competition existed before 2012 and the most recent kind of you know policy reforms that that have created kind of you know what we what we exist in today in England. But um, you know it's clearly going to be sort of pushed back. You know the world that this government kind of came into power uh, and particularly kind of you know after the election in December the world that they thought they were creating is is going to be very different the way that they are going to act is going to be very different the kinds of institutions that they didn't have much faith in when they kind of you know when they uh, came into power suddenly they've got more faith in because they're having to use them every day that includes universities scientific advice the BBC 
the civil service and and you know th- the world is the world is changing pretty rapidly but i think it's it's also worth saying kind of you know this government kind of already had its doubts about competition so you know when i talked about the leveling up agenda it's clear that you couldn't really achieve all of those things given that kind of competition and market framework that the ofs uh, was uh, was kind of established to oversee. So I think I think kind of you know that there there are a lot of universities and there are a lot of university agencies, higher education agencies that will be taking a long hard look at, at themselves and asking whether they are are set up in the right way, not just for handling the crisis as it kind of hits us today, but for the world that comes after it. Great. Let's see who's been blogging for us this week. Hi, I'm Smita Jamdar and I'm Partner and Head of Education at Shakespeare Martineau. Um, I wrote a piece this week for Wonky about the impacts of consumer protection law um, in the context of the current public health emergency. Uh, and it's obviously really important for institutions to try and manage this risk whilst at the same time trying to implement uh, quite significant changes to how they deliver their services to uh, students. So the main points uh, that I wanted to emphasise in my piece are that um, that there will be ramifications depending on what's in institutions' terms and conditions and therefore it's really important that institutions think uh, widely and carefully and listen to students about the changes that they're making right now. Now, next up, when you're in a crisis, get people to safety. That's what the textbooks say. And this week, a wave of student petition signing on assessment safety nets has swept the sector. Selena, tell us more. Yeah. Um, so the uh, well, not just the the, the student movement, but uh, universities, I think, over the last couple of weeks have been very focused on starting to think about what these no detriment or safety net policies uh, look like in terms of uh, assessments, particularly final year assessments. Uh, the principle being that uh, no no student should receive a degree classification that's worse than their performance in their degree so far. Um, but the academic regulations that people uh, that universities have, uh, they have not perhaps been um, completely adequate and sufficient in terms of dealing with the uh, the current situation. Uh, so many academic boards and senates will have been looking at uh, a, you know revised exceptional academic regulations to provide the kind of safety net that students require. Uh, but I think that it is, it's raised all sorts of issues. Uh, and, you know, it, it's not just about the safety net in terms of assessment, although that is the short term immediate task. I think in the longer term, we start to think about what kind of assurances as universities we can provide to students that will re-enroll with us next year. And as we mentioned, when we were discuss- discussing student number controls, uh, new students. So the, uh, the adequacy of student protection plans has also been something that people are starting to think about. I think probably in a nutshell, what we would say about student protection plans is they are, you know, they are not designed to deal with a crisis of this magnitude as so much else in the world we are discovering. Um, so in some senses, it almost seems um, just a complete waste of time and effort to start to kind of do a critique of individual institutional student protection plans. Um, this is where we require, again, a sector response. No individual institution can really adequately protect all of its students, not least because so many SPPs are predicated on the basis of an individual institution failing and therefore looking to another institution to take on responsibility for their students. Uh, and as we've said, there will not be an institution that you know is unaffected by this crisis. So where do people look to? Um, 
I think that one of the things that, you know, it, 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 again, it, I, 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 at risk of repeating myself, it, it goes back to this point, which is we, we just start to see how fragile individual institutions are as a system. You know, what we need is a national system. I think we look to other parts of the UK. We look to other European countries to see, I think, the level of assurance that those uh, national systems have been able to provide to their students and I think and, and their academics their academic staff I think that feels entirely different I think that they are much more able to focus on solving this problem as a short-term issue knowing that the fundamental demand um, for higher education will be you know unaffected in the long term it may need to change in terms of the kind of provision that is there um, I think it just shows that it, you know within the English system we've taken ourselves to a place that makes it incredibly difficult to formulate sector responses um, and I think that you know student protection plans are, are, are were never going to be the vehicle that were capable of alleviating the risks of continuation of study faced by students. Uh, Andy, what 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 should we do? And and you know, even if we just take the English system, <clears throat> you know, there's quite a long tail of providers on that uh, OFS register. What 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 should we do to offer some you know assurance to students who might be re-enrolling in a provider that's only got 150 students? Uh, you know about 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 the, 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 their studies and their in, you know them incurring tuition fee debt. Well, I think, I mean, on student protection plans, I'm not sure they were that well designed for the world before the crisis. But, um, you know, that's a, that, that's a whole other discussion that you can probably find on previous podcasts. Um, I, look, I think, I think if you take the approach that the government has had so far in other, uh, other areas, you look at employment, look at kind of businesses, you know, they've been, uh, they've been bold. Uh, you know, I think the Treasury and Rishi Sunak have, have done particularly well uh, and they've done things particularly quickly. Uh, and, you, you know, only have to look at kind of, you know, where the NHS and the Department of Health is at the moment. And you can sort of see how, how well the Treasury and how quickly they, they moved. But, you know, taking the Treasury as an example, they, they've been very clear that they've, they've not been able to help everybody in every organisation. And I think kind of, you know, there's a there's a there's got to be an element of realism and pragmatism here. And, you know, that long tail of institutions, um, you know, some of which have only just come into the sector, some of which are vulnerable because of those small numbers. Um, you know, it sounds terribly kind of Darwinian, um, but, you know, they're, they're not going to be the priority. And I think, um, you know, given, given this is a moment of setting priorities and preserving kind of those institutions that are going to be the most important uh, and preserving kind of you know the experience of students and the rights of students within those um, I'm afraid you've got to you've got to take that view and if it's 80% of kind of institutions on the register uh, then it's 80% of uh, institutions on the register and I think kind of you know DFE OFS and the institutions themselves have got to be pretty honest with uh, um, with students and with applicants that that's going to be the case. And Selena, this is a fascinating question, isn't it? So at Secret Life of Students, had we have actually run the event, one of the things we were going to talk about was student safety really broadly. And we were going to ask the question, look, is it the role of institutions to warn students about dangers 
You know, here's where, you know, p- parts of the campus are dark or, you know, if you do X, Y and Z, you're more likely to be stressed and so on. Or is it the role of institutions to eradicate dangers a bit more parental? And I guess, you know, there's a big question here for OFS going into September. Is it its role to sort of, you know, assess some riskier institutions and say you can't operate and then cause chaos? Or is it its role to say to students, these are the riskier institutions financially? Or, or should it back off and just try and help? I mean, there's, that's, a re- that's, a, that's a tough call for the regulator. I think it is a tough call for the regulator and I think you know this is um, when you uh, you realize that OFS is is, 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 again there is all sorts of failings in the way in which they were set up in terms of the remit that they have because I think to follow through on what was in the um, the higher education research act to in a very kind of purist way then yes it is their responsibility to advise students and the public of those institutions that are facing financial risk but when it is a situation that all of them or most of them would fall into that category then the actual medicine becomes worse than the the the, the disease that they're trying to uh, to to mitigate so i think that you know it, I, I actually think people need to put their hands up and I think they, they need to kind of treat people as adults and admit where the limitations of what would have been the everyday ordinary duties are just not going to cover this. And I think that there is um, a uh, this is why I think the kind of the, 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 there does have to be a national response to this. There has to be government intervention if there is any sense that the higher, edu- higher education experience over the next academic year can be truly de-risked from a student perspective. Because I think otherwise, uh, what will happen is, as, as I sort of said earlier in our discussion about student number controls, I think there is a real fear um, that home students will defer in very large numbers. And I think that, you know, there are universities who have not got huge reserves. There are a few that perhaps could get through uh, a, a very, very dry year. Uh, but most universities are not in that position, either in terms of the reserves that they have or the kind of lending facilities that they would need. And and, and in that case, I think the cost of a later bailout would be so much more than the cost of putting up a robust protection plan that came directly from the DfE. And, and Andy, just to bring us back uh, full circle, one of the you know one of the things I know has been happening over the past couple of weeks is there has been some nervousness in some institutions around no detriment because you know some institutions are being watched very closely on the basis of grade inflation. So and and there hasn't been a particularly strong signal around you know the interaction between protecting students no detriment and you know being under the cosh for you know your your, your grade inflation numbers yeah it's a good point i mean i think whether it's grade inflation or unconditional offers or kind of you know a whole bunch of other behaviors uh, there are institutions that are worried that the ofs is going to take a dim view of uh uh, of 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 what they do in this particular moment, which actually I think is 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 unfair. I mean, you know, we talked about kind of the, the context of number controls. I mean, you know, in all of our conversation this morning about. Uh, um, you know how institutions are going to respond whether domestic kind of demand is going to be um, anything like um, you know what we 
need to get through this period um it's clear that universities are going to go are going to have to go absolutely flat out just to just to get even close to the three-year average of recruitment kind of uh, um that they might be confronted with and i think kind of you know ofs have got to help here they can't come into this in quite the tin-eared way that they did at the start of the crisis and say that those things matter as much as they did last year and i think kind of you know that's 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 partly ofs's fault uh, and it's partly the fault of the legislation and the kind of policy framework that set them up. But they've got to adapt and they've got to change pretty quickly. Um, you, you know, Selena and, and and you have both mentioned the kind of Higher Education Research Act. I mean, I think that all, that already looked uh, um, a poor piece of legislation in the run up to December, given this government's agenda over kind of, you know, over not just uh, uh, levelling up and competition and science and research, but kind of it's its attitude to kind of how policy was made and, and enacted it, it already looked uh, vulnerable. I think kind of what the crisis will do is put is put that approach to higher education uh, under the spotlight. And I wouldn't be surprised if we see a new Higher Education and Research Act before the end of this parliament. That graduate class of 2020, what a hard time they will have had just to get through university. I mean, for, for, for many of them, they will also have... Um, yeah, this is a bad time to lose access to career services, isn't it? Well, this yeah. this was going to be my point. I mean, you know, not only have these, these students, uh, you know, had to suffer, uh, you know, lack of contact because of industrial action. Then you've got the COVID-19 crisis. You know, assessment is the most anxiety-provoking activity on campus in normal circumstances. But now you throw this on top of it and then they are going out into a graduate employment market that again is fundamentally changed and you know the impact of this of course we know will fall harder on some students than others and so the kind of task that I think our career services have in terms of trying to support students into employment or into into enterprise as as, as many students now wish to do um, I think it's really really important that those services are able to sort of double down and to put in extra efforts because I think you know this is the other thing that universities um, are, are very conscious of that their job is not just about letting people in it's not just about entry it's not just about teaching and it's not just about assessment it, it, it is about graduate outcomes um, and I think that that's something that we um, you know again could be an area we've seen it in the past when the graduate employment market has suffered but it has been an area in the past where there has been public policy and government funding to support different types of interventions of support. Great now HESA has put some finance data out and DK has had a bit of a delve to see if it gives us any clues on financial sustainability. The HESA Finance Open Data release always attracts a lot of attention, but this year the attention is of a very different sort. We all love to know how our university, and other providers we're interested in, are doing financially. HESA's annual release may be for the year before the current one, but it helps us put signals and announcements into perspective. The data is easy to read and easy to manipulate, far much more so than your institutional financial report. The general financial position of universities has, in the most part, deteriorated between 2017-18 and 2018-19, due not to increased spending or lower income, but to a one-off pensions cost linked to the 2017 US valuation. It's not a great place to face the oncoming crisis from. Of course, this year, our attention has been drawn to the income from international student fees following widespread assumptions that the September global cohort will simply fail to appear. On the site, I've broken down the income figures by mode and level of study. For some providers, international fee income dwarves home fee income, and postgraduate study plays as big a part of this as undergraduate study. 
Clearly not all of this income can or will be made up by increasing home student recruitment. There's some evidence that some providers make a loss on home students, topping these costs and research costs up with international fees. A fall in international student numbers would have widespread repercussions in these cases. Providers and lobbyists need really to be thinking about the case for direct state aid in the short to medium term, rather than an admission cycle that could put many smaller providers out of business. And finally, many universities claim to have a civic mission, but that claim is truly tested at times of national emergency. Andy, what have you spotted? So, yes, this uh, this week we've seen the announcement from from the UPP Foundation that uh, Sheffield Hallam, second time I mentioned them in this podcast, uh, have been awarded the hosting rights for the Civic University Network. Um, and they'll be working with the Institute of, Communi- uh, of Community Studies and uh, NCCPE. Um, um, and, um, you know, they're not just going to have UPP money, they're going have cash from DFE, Arts Council, and others to uh, uh, to operate this network. So that's fantastic news, and and I think um, I think you're right. You know, it's it's y- y- you know this 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 piece of work that began uh, um, you know nearly three years ago now um, around the Civic University and kind of thinking about how important it was, um, what could be done to support it in the future has just got more and more important as time has gone on. And uh, I think some real credit is due, actually, to uh, the UPP Foundation, to Richard Brabner in particular. Uh, but I'd also I'd also pick out um, Alex Favier, Nee Miles at the University of Nottingham, because this was something that kind of you know they they both spent a lot of time thinking about before it was uh, before it was set up as an initiative. And I think it you know in the in in the in the moment that we find ourselves in, um, you know, it's it's something that is is just gathering importance and pace. We know it kind of, you know, it, it merited a line in the Conservative manifesto. We know that uh, policymakers have become more interested in it. Michelle Donnellan, when she writes to the sector now, mentions it in every letter. Um, and, and we can see that kind of head of steam just developing. But we also just know instinctively that it's the right thing to do. And you can see in individual universities' response to the to the pandemic and kind of, you know, and what they're doing, that, that, that this part of their response is becoming more and more important. And I think in 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 their hearts, institutions know that that is only going to get bigger when this crisis is over. So I think it's um you know it's part of that existential moment that we've already uh, we've already talked about. And I think it's it's something that's going to become more and more important. Um, and I think that kind of you know Sheffield Hallam. Uh, was an excellent choice. Bob Kerslake is obviously uh, chair of governors there. Chris Husbands uh, uh, has very much been on the front foot in in terms of the civic university agenda and and kind of policy making in general. Uh, and I think they will do uh, a brilliant job supporting the sector as as they sort of really begin to take this much more seriously. Selena, lots of positives here. Yeah, lots of positives, and I think that um, as well as the uh, examples that we've seen over the last week of uh, individual universities stepping up in relation to the COVID-19 crisis in terms of, you know, lending equipment, facilities, uh, housing blocks. I saw the University of East London, my old institution, uh, was uh, putting over one of its accommodation blocks to house NHS workers at the new Nightingale Hospital down at the Excel Centre. I think there's obviously the kind of the volunteering effort as well, which uh, is something that has been where universities are steering potential students, staff, volunteers into local 
local volunteering networks. These are all great things and I think really emphasise the role that universities can play within their communities. I think that what I hope is that universities, this isn't just a one-off, that actually this is something that, as Andy says, is, is, is a change that is longer, longer term. Um, I think this is something about tone as well, because it's not just having people who all become kind of clairs in their community for a couple of months. I think it's about thinking in a much more fundamental way about how our offer, whether it be teaching, research, facilities, can orientate itself towards public use in the long term, in a much more accessible way. Um, it's something at Goldsmiths that we've um, thought long and hard about over the last few years because we're a relatively small institution. So it's not as if we have ever sort of, you know, uh, it's never been possible, I suppose, in many ways, just to sort of set up a, a separate community unit, you know. But we have got across the institution, across our academic departments, lots of lots of different examples of where people are able to engage in a really positive way with their community. But I also think this is a real opportunity in the context of the Civic University Network for there to be more partnerships with other education providers, particularly FE colleges, because I think they tend to be much, much closer to the ground in terms of the communities in need who are most affected. Um, and I think it is a great opportunity to show how education providers can work together to have real impact in terms of a locality. So that's about it for this week. To find out more about anything we've discussed today, you'll find links on the episode page at wonky.com where you can also leave your thoughts and comments. Don't forget you can subscribe to us automatically. Just search for The Wonky Show on your favourite podcast directory or you'll find the feed you need on wonky.com forward slash podcast. And if you think you've got what it takes to be a guest on the show, do drop us an email on team at wonky.com and we'll be in touch. So thanks again to our guests Andy and Selena, to everyone at Team Wonky for making the show happen and of course to you for listening. Until next week, stay wonky. Stay wonky.